Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. When I feel up, okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annison. You're listening to episode 177 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 9 Preparations. In the history of the United States, few years rivaled 1969. Richard Milhouse Nixon moved into the White House and across the globe from Northern Ireland to Southeast Asia. It was a dangerous world. Senator Ted Kennedy drove off a bridge at Chappaquiddick, ending his chances for presidency. Even more amazing, The Mets won the World Series. Yet it really was the year of Apollo. The ecological movement kicked into high gear. Apollo 8's stunning images of Earth in vibrant color, images never before seen by man until we pushed our way into space, brought home the reality of what we had accomplished in sending men to the moon. It provided the environmental movement a powerful visual expression of the concept of Spaceship Earth. For a brief moment in December 1968, NASA had united all humanity. In the coming months, in the greatest adventure of mankind, we would attempt to place two Americans on the surface of the moon. Apollo's success in the 7th and 8th missions argued well for a manned landing on the moon during 1969. But program executives were not complacent about even these demonstrations of the command and service modules and the Saturn V. To their credit, the program executives did not exhibit any tendency to depart from the systematic step-by-step plan and rush toward a lunar landing earlier than scheduled. Still, President Kennedy's deadline year had arrived. Frank Borman's Apollo 8 crew in its flight near the moon had met no major obstacles, but the need for trailblazing missions had not lessened. Associate Administrator for Manned Spaceflight George Miller in Washington wrote Center Director Robert Gilruth in Houston after Apollo 8 to remind him, quote, It is essential that we not rest on our laurels, for we have yet to land on the moon. 
Hill Ruth foresaw few chances of resting. Only three days of the new year had passed when John Stevenson, director of mission operations in Washington, projected five Apollo flights for 1969, with launches on February 28th, May 17th, July 15th, September 12th, and December 10th. This schedule was essentially the same race with the decade timetable outlined a year earlier. NASA had scheduled six missions in 1968, but only four were executed. The other two were deemed not necessary. NASA could also omit a flight in 1969 if the crew of the Apollo 11 could touch down, stay a while, and leave the moon safely. The intervals between following launches could then be as long as six months in order to assimilate more of what had been learned before going on to the next moon mission. But until the first landing took place, Miller and his management council still planned to launch a mission every two and a half months. NASA headquarters in Washington continued to emphasize schedules, even while worrying lest something be overlooked in meeting the deadline. To avert this possibility, Washington kept adding specialized administrative layers. This, of course, did not please Gilruth, and he quickly complained to Miller that too many headquarters review teams were investigating one thing or another about the missions. But, out of these administrative actions, two technical suggestions surfaced at headquarters. The first, tinged with conservatism, was to land an unmanned lunar module on the moon before a manned vehicle touched down. Miller told Acting Administrator Thomas Paine that modifying the lander for unmanned flight would take too long and would, in the end, give very little in return for the cost in time and money. But, if something did go wrong in these final missions leading up to Apollo 11, a few conservatives in NASA would insist that the first landing be unmanned. The second idea, proposed by Apollo Program Director Samuel Phillips, was to ship the command and service modules to the CAPE already assembled and mated rather than separately. Houston's Apollo spacecraft program manager, George Lowe, informed Phillips it would save time at Kennedy, but would add time at Downey. It would also cost an extra million dollars. Now, there was good reasoning behind these ideas for hurrying along and holding back Apollo. The always-present desk and wall calendars kept reminding the managers that time was running out. But more importantly, they had to guard against another terrible tragedy like Apollo 1. There was good news in two areas. The program cost and the spacecraft weights. Both North American and Grumman were operating within fiscal 1969 financial limits. And although fire-related changes in the command and service modules had increased the weight significantly, NASA and North American had reversed this trend in the latter half of 1967. 
in the succeeding months, the command module's bulk had actually been whittled down. Lunar module weight, however, did not stabilize until mid-1968, and that machine still had some lingering technical troubles. One of the more exasperating problems was the electrical wiring in Lunar Module 3. Kennedy Space Center engineers had complained about the vehicle ever since its arrival in Florida in June of 1968. In order to get a handle on the situation, George Lowe asked Martin Raines, the Reliability and Quality Assurance Chief in Houston, to find out just how bad the wiring was. Raines told Lowe that he had found hundreds of splices in the vehicle, but it could still fly safely. Most of the broken wiring, Raines said, was caused by the low tensile strength of the annealed copper wiring. The wiring in Lunar Module 4, which was assigned to Apollo 10, would probably be better since a higher strength copper alloy could be used. Another recurring lander ailment was stress corrosion, or metal cracking. Grumman had no structural failures during testing, but the cracks worried both NASA and the contractor engineers. A number of fittings were replaced in Lunar Modules 3, 4, and 5, and by the end of January 1969, the vehicles for Apollo 9 and 10 were considered ready for launching. If problems arose later, more fittings could be changed on Lunar Module 5 as it passed through its testing program. Operational, as well as component problems, raised some issues during this period. For example, what would happen to the electrical systems in the spacecraft when the command module and the lunar module docked? Ground tests at Downey and the Cape revealed that there would be little electromagnetic interference. But a larger question centered on flying the lunar module after the vehicle separated. About a year before the Apollo 9 mission, astronaut Charles Conrad had commented to mission planner Bill Tyndall that the lander would be hard to handle when a large amount of propellant had been used and the descent stage had been dropped off. At a flight program review in October 1968, Phillips asked about the problems of steering the lightweight ascent stage manually. Gilruth directed Warren North and Donald Cheatham to find out what the difficulties would be. North and Cheatham reported that docking would require precise control, but that this and other guidance tasks had been successfully simulated at Bethpage, in Houston, and at Langley. Which brings us to the biggest concern before Apollo 9, the docking maneuver. In early 1969 at NASA, there was little confidence in the docking system. At a January program review, Phillips said that problems encountered during probe and drogue testing worried him. When the two spacecrafts docked, the command module's extendable probe was supposed to enter the lunar module's funnel-shaped drogue. On several occasions, 
When the command module's probe had nuzzled into the lander's drogue, the capture latches had failed to engage. In other tests, they had only partially caught, raising the specter of jackknifing and possible damage to one of the spacecraft, probably the lunar module. Phillips was also concerned that the sharp edges on the probe might scar the drogue when the crafts were reeled together and prevent airtight sealing of the 12 latches on the command module docking ring. George Lowe asked his deputy, Kenneth Kleinick, to investigate, and on January 14th, Kleinick and six others from the Manned Space Center went to Downey to see what was being done about correcting 17 known problem areas. North American personnel responded well to each criticism, which satisfied Kleinick's team. Although the spacecraft was the main concern, Marshall Space Flight Center focused on a nagging item a little lower in the stack. Frank Borman and his crew aboard Apollo 8 had been grateful when the second stage of the Saturn V finished thrusting and dropped away. Although the launch had been neither particularly painful nor dangerous, it had shaken the astronauts up and bounced them about. Launch vehicle engineers concluded that the shaking had been a form of pogo, since the pulsing engines had increased the vibrations. The Marshall and Rocketdyne people pounced on the problem, trying out various fuel-feeding combinations through the propellant valve. Another suggested cure was to increase the pressure to the inlet of the oxidizer pump. But time was too short for tests of this method before the scheduled launch of Apollo 9, and there were some objections. But NASA managers decided to raise the pressure in the propellant tanks a little and hope for the best. The crew on Apollo 9 might very well encounter just as much pogo as the crew of the preceding flight, but that was not enough to delay the launch. Now I want to say a word about the workload at Kennedy. Apollo 9 gave the Kennedy launch preparations team its first opportunity to simulate the launch of a lunar landing mission all the way through liftoff. Remember, Apollo 8, with only the command and service modules aboard, represented just half of the spacecraft preparation task. This time, in addition to checking, stacking, and rechecking the multi-stage Saturn V, the team had to get two spacecrafts ready for flight and launch them. Also, the fast-track effort for Apollo 8 put Mission Control behind for Apollo 9. Mission Control training for Apollo 9 didn't begin until December 30, 1968. The beehive of activities employing thousands of persons grew more frenzied as hardware for several missions began arriving regularly from the factories. For example, before Apollo 8 left its launch pad on December 21, 1968, all the pieces of Apollo 9 and some of the pieces for Apollo 10 were already in Florida. Lunar Module 3 arrived from Grumman in June of 1968. 
By the end of September, four altitude chamber tests of the ascent stage have been run to check the environmental control system and operations of many computers under simulated vacuum conditions of space. During this time, engineers and technicians examining the descent stage found dimples in the oxidizer lines. Since the dents were within acceptable limits, they caused no problems. Elsewhere, other workers were stacking the S2 stage on top of the S1 in the huge vehicle assembly building. The ascent and descent stages of the lunar lander were then joined, tested, and taken apart again. When inspectors found cracks in the ascent stage engine, a heavier engine was substituted. The command module and the service module arrived from Downey the first week in October, and the North American CAPE team, even with all its experience, had trouble fitting them together. Also, when the attitude control thruster quad sets were attached to the service module, a cracked quad was found. While that was being evaluated, the command module and the lunar module were brought together for a docking test. The command module was then moved to the altitude chamber for tests similar to those the lunar module had undergone, and the lander was hauled into a hangar for the installation of the rendezvous radar, antennas, and pyrotechnics. From time to time, the command and service modules, the lunar module, or the launch vehicle were either a few days ahead or behind schedule, but by mid-December, all vehicles were on schedule. On January 3rd, Apollo 9 lumbered on its carrier out of the assembly building and crawled toward Launch Complex 39. Simultaneously, flight simulations linked with the control center in Houston and all the normal jobs at the pad, such as cabin leak checks, electrical power tests, and component operations, were going on. Some engineers were working on technical problems that had cropped up during previous missions. One was the fogging spacecraft windows, particularly the round one in the hatch door. Samples of contaminants from Command Service Module 101 and 103 were studied, and the hatch window from 101 was tested by subjecting it to the hot and cold extremes met in space. Some thought a better method for curing the glass might eliminate the fogging, but others analyzing the residue from thruster firings were not at all sure that the space environment was the problem. If firing from the reaction control thrusters, which steered the spacecraft, was smudging the windows, there might never be a solution. As work progressed, the accumulated information was fed into the management reviews. The certification review, which covered all flight hardware, including spacesuits, was held at NASA headquarters on January 7th. Flight readiness reviews were later conducted for each of the vehicles, command and service modules, lunar module, and the Saturn V, and then confirmed before Apollo Director Phillips. On February 28th, 
all hardware problems had been solved, all questions answered. Everything was ready for flight, except the pilots. All three astronauts had head colds. Now let's move on to the crew selection for Apollo 9. In April 1966, McDivitt, Scott, and Swigert were selected by Deke Slayton as the second Apollo crew as backup to Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee for the first manned Earth orbital test flight of the Apollo Block 1 Command Service Module, designated AS-204, which was expected to fly in late 1966. This was to be followed by a second Block 1 flight, AS-205, to be crewed by Wally Sherall, Don Isley, and Walter Cunningham. The third manned mission, designated AS-207-208, was planned to fly the Block 2 command module and the lunar module in Earth orbit, launched on separate Saturn 1Bs, with a crew to be named. However, delays in the Block 1 command service module development pushed AS-204 into 1967. By December 1966, the original AS-205 mission was canceled. Chiral's crew was named as Grissom's backup, and McDivitt's crew was promoted to the prime crew for the Lunar Module Earth Orbit Test Mission, redesignated as AS-205-208. But on January 27th, Grissom's crew were conducting a launch pad test for their planned February 21st mission, which they named Apollo 1, when a fire broke out in the cabin, killing all three men and putting an 18-month hold on the manned program while the Block 2 command module and the A7L pressure suit were redesigned for safety. As it turned out, a 1967 launch of AS-205-208 would have been impossible even if the Apollo 1 accident did not occur, as problems with the lunar module delayed its first unmanned test flight until January 1968. NASA was able to use the 18-month hiatus to catch up with development and unmanned testing of the lunar module and the Saturn V launch vehicle. By October 1967, planning for manned flights resumed, with Apollo 7 being the first Earth orbit command service module flight in October 1968 given to Sherall's crew and McDivitt's mission following as Apollo 8 in December 1968, but now using a single Saturn V instead of two Saturn 1Bs. This would be followed by a higher Earth orbit flight to be crewed by Frank Borman, Mike Collins, and William Anders in early 1969. However, the lunar module had problems again and delayed McDivitt's Apollo 8 mission so NASA officials created another mission for Apollo 8 using the Saturn V to launch only the command and service module on the first manned flight to orbit the moon, 
and this allowed the higher Earth orbit flight to be canceled. Slayton asked McDivitt and Borman which mission they preferred to fly. McDivitt wanted to fly the lunar module, while Borman volunteered for the pioneering lunar orbit flight. So, Slayton swapped the crews, and McDivitt's crew flew Apollo 9. The crew swap also affected who would be the first crew to land on the moon. When the crews for Apollo 8 and 9 were swapped, their backup crews were also swapped. Since the rule of thumb was for backup crews to fly as prime crew three missions later, this put Neil Armstrong's crew in position for the first landing mission, Apollo 11, instead of Pete Conrad's crew, who would make the second landing on Apollo 12. From the perspective of early 1969, the manned shakedown crews of the lunar module, even in Earth orbit, was a risky venture. The thought of Mission Commander McDivitt and Lunar Module Pilot Swigert flying away from the command module in the lunar module with no heat shield, which could not return to Earth on its own, was a little frightening. In an emergency, however, Command Module Pilot Scott could steer his ship to a rendezvous with a stricken lunar module. Of course, NASA officials hoped this would not be necessary. They wanted a smooth operating lunar module that could simulate many of the steps in the lunar orbit mission. Now I have a clip from the crew commenting on this risky maneuver. I mean, relatively within the mission, which of the maneuvers are more critical? Well, obviously, uh, the untethered EVA with a limb probably is because the limb goes to 90 miles. It has no heat shield and no tether. So it's uh, essential that the limb returns to the heat shield. One thing that we should keep in mind is that only one of these vehicles has a capability to land. Uh, safely, I guess I should add. They both have the capability of landing. <laughs> we only have one set of parachutes and one heat shield. Flight planners had another key objective for Apollo 9, and that was checking out what might also be called the third spacecraft in the program, a combination of the extravehicular spacesuit and the portable life support system, the PLSS, or more commonly known as the backpack. As a matter of fact, this was the only flight scheduled for the backpack before the lunar landing mission, making it of prime importance in finding out how the equipment worked in space. The commander, McDivitt, and the lunar module pilot, Swigert, wearing their extravehicular garments, would crawl through the tunnel from the command module into the lunar module. Then, Swigert, after donning the backpack, and attaching a nylon cord tether to his spacesuit would move through the open front hatch and step out on the porch of the lunar module. Finally, he would use handrails to climb over and crawl into the open command module's hatch. Swigert's task also included 
collecting experiment supplies on the spacecraft exterior and standing in foot restraints called golden slippers on the lunar module porch to take photographs and operate a television camera. Because there would be two crafts in simultaneous flight, Apollo 9 revived the practice that had been discarded almost four years earlier. That was call signs, or names, for spacecraft. Gordon Cooper had encountered trouble selling the name Faith 7 for his Mercury Atlas 9 craft to NASA officials. If anything happened, they dreaded the thought of the almost inevitable headline, quote, The United States Lost Faith Today, end quote. During Gemini, these same leaders had turned down Gus Grissom's selection of Molly Brown for Gemini Titan III, which alluded to both the unsinkable characteristics of an American heroine and the loss of his Liberty Bell Seven during Mercury. His second choice, Titanic, was equally unwelcome. After that, missions were simply called by the program name and a number, such as Gemini 6 or Apollo 7. But now, a single designation, such as Apollo 9, was no longer enough. Flight control would have to talk to McDivitt and Swigert in the lunar module, as well as Scott in the command module. McDivitt's crew named the lander Spider for its long, thin legs and bug-like body. When North American shipped the command module to Florida, its candy wrapper appearance and shape suggested the name Gumdrop. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.